Forrest Gump is sitting at his wife's grave, Jenny. She had led a very uh, tumultuous life. She had made very, very bad decisions in her life. Died very early as a result of it. And Forrest is sitting at her grave saying this. He's asking himself, he says, do we have a destiny? Or are we all just floating around, kind of accidental-like, like a feather on the breeze? Do we have a destiny... Or do we all, are we all just floating around, kind of accidental-like, like a feather on a breeze? That's really what that movie is telling us, that that is what we are, just a feather on a breeze that's just floating around accidental-like. There's no direction, no purpose, no meaning, and you just got to go with it and make the best of it. And really, that question, is there a destiny, or, or are we really just the result of a cosmic accident, and we were just kind of dropped here to fend for ourselves and kind of you know, float around and make the best of it? That's really the question that we all have to ask ourselves and answer for ourselves at some point. Am I an accident, or do I have a destiny? A lot of people today, I would think especially my generation, maybe a little older and then <laughs> since then, that's really the worldview that we've been raised with, that we grew up with in, in our Western culture. We're just all an accident. We just happen to be here. Survival of the fittest, you know, you just got to fend for yourself. Mike Bro, the guy who wrote this book, and I'm, I just want to warmly recommend this to you. You'll, you'll notice when you read it, I borrow quite a bit from him today. He's just, it's just really good, some of his illustrations. He, he calls this generation that lives like that, like this feather on a breeze, he calls them the whatever generation. Because it's whatever. Or what about the, oh, whatever. There's no, no purpose, no direction, no meaning. We come from nothing, and we go to nothing. And you know what the result of that is? If you believe you come from nothing, and you're going to nothing, you know what? Then the in-between means nothing. If you go to, come from nothing and you go to nothing, then really there is, no, there is no ultimate truth. If there is no ultimate truth, then there is no right or wrong, and you can just do whatever feels right. That's why he calls them the whatever generation. And if that really is all there is, if there was nothing before and nothing comes after this life, then, then this life is all there is, and there is no meaning. Well, then you become the meaning. You become the center of your universe. And what drives you is whatever serves you, whatever advances your cause, whatever feels good to you. That's how you live your life. And if people live their life like that, if that's the philosophy, if that's their worldview, then you don't have to look very far for the results of that kind of lifestyle. Found some research that was done recently among 29,000 high school students in the United States from a, sample, a random sample of 100 high schools across the country. And this is, this is the results of, of this survey. And this, the results reflect the, the past 12 months um, of these students' lives. 71% of these students admitted that they cheated on an exam in this year before. 71%. 92% of them said that they lied to their parents in these last 12 months. And the other 8% lied about lying to their parents. All right? <laughs> 78% of them said that they lied to a teacher during that, that school year. One out of four admitted that they would lie to get a job. 
about stealing, they said 40% of the, of the male students and 30% of the female students admitted that they had stolen, shoplifted in a store over those last 12 months. And nearly one in six said that they had been drunk in school at least once during those past 12 months. High school students, one in six. 68% of them said that they have hit somebody or been violent, um, physically violent in the last year because they had gotten angry at somebody. So 70% of them think it's, it's okay to use violence to resolve conflict. And here's the absolute kicker that puts all of this into perspective. 93% of these students said that they are satisfied with their personal ethics and character. <laughs> right? 93% of them think their ethics are in order. See, it doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it does to them. Because if, if we're just an accident, if we're just floating around like a feather on a breeze and there's no before and no after and there's no purpose meaning, well, then, then you do whatever, whatever serves you and then that makes it right. If there's no right or wrong, then I'm going to do whatever feels good, whatever makes me happy, whatever serves me. Now, I, if I think back to my growing up in my teenage years, you know, when you start thinking about these issues of, of purpose and origin and where do you go, I, I, I could never identify with this floating around business. I, I always had a sense and a, and a strong desire to do something meaningful with my life. I don't know, maybe you can identify with that. From, from early teenage years on, I remember thinking, said, Christian, don't become an average Joe. Do something significant. Now, for me, that meant becoming a soccer professional. I thought that would make me significant. But really, what I, I didn't want to live this, this, this boring, just average Joe, same old, same old life. And I think, actually, I, I know that God created us. Deep inside of us, he created us with a longing for significance and for meaning and for purpose. I think deep inside of us, he put into all of us a desire to change the world or change, change our little world, to make a difference, to lead a life of significance. But that cannot happen within whatever attitude, within whatever worldview. It cannot happen if we believe and live like we're just floating around accidental-like, like a feather on a breeze. So I want to look with you this morning of what does the Bible have to say about our origin and about our purpose and about how we can be world changers. And I would love for you to open up, if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. But we will have it on the screen for you also. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are, you are, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, you have been thought of in advance. It says God created you as his workmanship. Another word to translate that would be masterpiece. Every single one of you, no matter what people have told you throughout your lifetime, no matter how you really feel about that, God thought of you a long, long time ago and made you a masterpiece. 
And he made you, it says here, he made you so that you can do what he has prepared for you in advance. It tells me something else. Not just did he think of you in advance, but he thought of a plan for your life in advance. He has a specific purpose for you. He has things that he created you to do. He wanted you. And he wants to accomplish great things through you. I'm on Twitter now. Anybody on Twitter? I Twitter all the time. So do you, Paul. <laughs> so I follow Rick Warren on Twitter. Rick Warren is a pastor of Saddleback Church in California. He's got great things to say. And a couple of weeks ago, he had a Twitter thingy. He tweeted, and it said this. He said, there are lots of accidental parents, but there are no accidental or illegitimate children. All of you are wanted by God. Oh, isn't that good? I was straight out of this passage in Ephesians. There is... There's lots of accidental parents. Whoops, what happened? But the child is never an accident because God thought of that child centuries ago. And all of us are wanted by God. In his book, Making Ripples, Mike Bro talks about a survey that was taken among a group of 95-year-old people. I don't know how many of them he got together. I don't think there is too many of them. But he got, they got a group of 95-year-old people together who have lived a long, long, long life, who have had time to look back over their life and reflect on, on what they did and how they did things. And they asked them this one question. They said, if you could do life all over again, if you had to do it all again, what would you do? How would you do it differently? And I want to read to you from the book what the results were. They're, they're surprising. To me, they were. Page 60. This is what they said. If we had to do life all over again, they said, first of all, we would reflect more. We'd slow down, savor more sunset, eat more ice cream, amen, and laugh more. We would enjoy life more. We would soak in more special moments. We wouldn't work so far, fast and feverishly. Right? So first of all, after 95 years they've lived life, they said, you know what? We would slow down. Work isn't all that important after all. More time with family, more time enjoying creation and just enjoying life, number one. Secondly, they said, and this really surprised me, we would risk more, we would take more chances, we would live life like it's an adventure where you can't pick the fruit unless you're out on a limb somewhere. Like an old guy said to me one day, son, if you ain't living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> right? So I would expect them maybe to say, well... I'd start saving earlier and put more you know, money into my retirement and, and better insurance and more safety nets. And, and No, what they're saying is risk more. Be out there, be on the edge and enjoy life. Live it like an adventure. That's from 95-year-olds. Isn't that interesting? And thirdly, they said, if we had to do it all over again, we'd do something with our lives that would live on long after we're dead and gone. Right? So the last thing for them was, we want to live, really what this says is, we, we wish we had lived a life of significance that has meaning after it's over. I don't know about you, but when I'm 95, if I get there, I don't want to have those regrets. I, I don't want to have to look back and say, man, I wish... I wish I had savored life more. I wish 
I had taken more risks. I wish my life would have been more of an adventure. And I hope that I can say my life will have effects after I'm gone. What about you? I love learning from people. I, much more than just picking up a, a textbook and reading about things. And I want to look with you this morning at the person that has changed this planet like no other person who ever walked on this planet. There was a magazine, or is a magazine in Germany, a news magazine, kind of like a Time magazine or Newsweek. It's called Der Spiegel, that's the mirror. And in the last months of 1999, they did a survey and a series of articles based on that survey. What they did is they asked the readers, tell us who you think was the most influential person of this last millennium from 1,000 to 2,000. Who changed this world like nobody else? Who do you think that is? So people would write in and then they would do an article based on that, that uh, suggestion and they would talk about that person's merits to this title, biggest world changer in the, in the last millennium. And so they did a series of these articles and then they, all along they said, first issue in 2000, we'll tell you what we came up with. And all the research we've done as a, as a mag magazine, we'll tell you who we think was the most influential person of that last millennium. And you'd be surprised, it wasn't a president, it wasn't a politician, it wasn't JFK, it wasn't Obama, well, he wasn't around then. Well, um, it wasn't a philosopher, it wasn't a civil rights person, it wasn't Mother Teresa, it wasn't Nelson Mandela, it wasn't Martin Luther King. On the first issue, Of the, 2000, of the year 2000, they had a picture of Jesus on the front of their magazine. A person that was born as a, well, was conceived under very mysterious circumstances, out of wedlock. The first years of his life, he lived as a fugitive, running for his life. He was the son then of a lowly carpenter in a podunk little insignificant village in the hill country of a small, small land in the eastern Mediterranean. During his lifetime, he only had 12 closely devoted followers. Most other people despised him. There was a lot of opposition, a lot of hatred. He was killed at a young age of 33. It's two years younger than me. After only three years of public ministry and service. And all this happened 2,000 years ago in a time when there was no TV, no phones, no Twitter, no mass media, no PR agents. And that person, Jesus from Nazareth, that's what this article said. It doesn't really matter what you believe about him theologically. Where your faith is doesn't really factor into that. They said there's no denying that the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth influenced and changed this millennium from 1,000 to 2,000 more than any other person that was alive. And he didn't even live in that millennium. And so in the end of, the, of this multi-page article, they said, and you know what? He wasn't just the most influential and biggest world changer in this millennium, but in the millennium before. There hasn't been anybody that has changed this world more than the person of Jesus Christ. And yeah, I think if he were on Larry King Live today, Jesus said this, and Larry would ask him, said, tell us, why on earth, how did you have such an influence over this planet over 2,000 years. 
I believe he would point to this Bible verse. Open it up with me again if you have your Bible or look it up on the screen. It's in John chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. I'm going to read it to you from the message. Um, it's just really cool how he, how he translated this and put this down. He said, this is what Jesus says. He says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you will have it forever, real and, eter and eternal. Let me read that last sentence again. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you will have it forever, real and eternal. See, to, to again, use that example of that grain. If you have a, grain, a, piece, a, a little seed... If that piece of seed is, is only interested in self-preservation, only in self, because there's nothing before and after, it's all about me, well, then that seed is completely going to miss its purpose of, of being put in the ground and, and gaining real life and, and reproducing itself and multiplying itself. And this, of course, is an illustration that Jesus gives, and it's a secret for significance and meaning in our lives. What he's saying is you were created to give of yourself. You were created... To, to put down your own life, your own self-interest, give your life away, and through that find meaning, purpose, and real life, and great fruit, and multiplication that will come from that. So what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean when it says to die to yourself, to, to, to give up your life? I think Jesus illustrated that in, in John chapter 5, verse, verse 19. Let's go to that together. It's a, it's a time when he's challenged by the authorities of how, how are you doing these things? Who gives you authority to do what you do and say what you do? And this is what he tells me. He says, I tell you the truth. The son, talking about himself, can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. I can do nothing by myself, he says. I only do what I see the father do. See, what he's talking about here is complete submission. Complete submission to God. And then we see it again, very powerfully illustrated in Mark 14, 36. At the very end of Jesus' life, he's about to get arrested. And he knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to suffer and die. And he's wrestling, talking to, to his father and says, Father, is there any way we can do this differently? And then he says, but you know what? Your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. That, that is putting your life down and submitting it to God's will. That is burying that seed and then allowing God to bring great fruit from that life. See, really what we're, what we're reading here in this passage about the seed and about Jesus, what Jesus did, how he submitted to the Father. And this is super important. This is central to, to everything we're going to say this morning is that one life, one life surrendered to God can change the world. Your life surrendered to God can change your world. You know what I call that kind of Christ follower? 
call it a, a whatever Christian. Not, not the whatever generation, or you know, whatever, but a generation of Christ followers that says, whatever you say, God, whatever you want, Jesus, I will do. Whatever you ask of me, I will give. That kind of whatever Christ follower will, will change his world for God. And we have examples of that right here in our midst, or we had, and I'm sure we still do. Remember Jason and Jen Brum just a few weeks ago. We, we said goodbye to them here on the stage. You know why? Because both of them felt God telling them, pick up, quit your job at K2, go to Colorado Springs. Not because Jason had a great job offer. He didn't have a job at all. <laughs> They just both felt that God was telling them, pick up, just I need you to go to Colorado Springs. Do you know what they said? Whatever, Jesus. Whatever you ask us to do, we will do. And they went. But half a year ago, we had a guy called Vince Antonucci here speaking. He's, he went down to Las Vegas to plan a church. You might remember that. We had a couple sitting right here in these chairs. And I'm telling you, these are dangerous chairs. The bossies were sitting here. And during that message, they heard God tell them, pick up, I want you to go to Vegas with him and plant this church. You know what they said? Whatever, Jesus, whatever you ask of us, we'll do. They sold their home. They're in Vegas now. And you know what? They're on a great adventure. Fifteen years ago, God told a really hot French girl to marry a not-so-hot, big-headed German guy. And she went, really? <laughs> But then she went, whatever, Jesus. And she did it. And we're here. Jesus might say, I want you to give more. Give more of yourself. Give more of your resources. Are you going to say... Whatever, Jesus, whatever you want. God told us as K2, I want you to go south. Go to Sandy. All right, whatever, Jesus. We're going. And we're going in 62 days. Whatever, Christians, who say whatever you want, Jesus. And I can guarantee you one thing. Actually, God guarantees it, so I can guarantee it with him. If you become that kind of Christ follower, your life will never be the same. And neither will the life of the people that you will touch, that you will come in contact with living that kind of life. You will never be the same. So what, what keeps us from being that kind of Christ follower? What keeps us, what keeps me from, from really always living like this? Say, okay, Jesus, whatever you want. I know what keeps me oftentimes. You know what that is? It's fear. It's fear because we don't know what's coming. If, if I really do that, it could really mess up my life. And I guarantee you it will. Because <laughs> God, God wants that. He wants to shake us up and he wants to rattle our cage. But it's fear. It's, it's seemingly the loss of control. There's a story in the Bible about a guy like that. You'll find it in Matthew 19. He's called the rich young ruler. He was a young guy, had, had lots of money, lots of resources. He heard about Jesus and really was really intrigued and really wanted to be all in. And he came to Jesus and said, hey, how can I be all in with you? How can I really follow you? And for him, that meant, Jesus said, you know, for you, that would mean selling everything you have. Give it all away and then come and follow me. Oh, he wasn't ready to do that. And it says he walked away sadly. And I believe sadly, again, because God built it in us that we need to live a life of complete surrender to him. He wasn't willing to do that. And he walked away sadly because 
those resources were more important than Jesus. He couldn't say, whatever you want, Jesus, I'll do it. He couldn't say that. Mike Bro, in his book, he calls people like that toad dipper, toad dipper Christians. You know how you get into a pool? There's toad dippers and there's cannonballs, he says. I'm a cannonball. Who's a toad dipper? There's nothing wrong about being a toad dipper in the swimming pool. All right? My wife is a toad dipper. Get into the pool. Oh, that's cold. And then the ankle. Oh, that's still cold. Yeah, honey, it, it is cold. And then the calf. Oh, it's still cold. And then for guys, it gets really cold. And, but then you, eventually you get in. You know, I'm a cannonball guy. I, I just get up on that, on that thingy on the board and just tuck my knees under my chin and what? Now, we have a little pool in the backyard. The problem is it's not good for our water bill when I do that because it just goes, you know, it just goes all over the side. And we lose lots of water when I do that. But, so there's, there's toe dipper Christians and cannonball Christians. See, if we let those fears, and there's, there's lots of them, there's a the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen if I really do that? What's the future going to look like? There's the fear of losing control, right? If we really want to surrender to Jesus, what is he going to ask of me? Loss of control. Another one that's, that's I think, very, very big in our culture is comfort. We don't want to lose our comfort. Right? We're, we're comfortable where we're at and with our lifestyle and what we have. and wow, What Jesus ask, might ask me could put me out of my comfort zone. There's the fear of that. Oh, here's a big one for me. I'm a pleaser. I, I, I need to please people. And one thing I've always been fearful of is other people's opinion. What are they going to think if I really do that? See, because what Jesus asks of us oftentimes makes no sense to other people, or to you even. <laughs> if I really do, what, what is so-and-so going to think? What's my mom going to say? Fear of other people's opinion can keep us back. Or this one, the fear that, that you have nothing to offer. The fear that you might not be capable and have what it takes, what Jesus might ask of you. And you know what? You're right. Yes, yes, and yes to all of those. <laughs> We're not capable. We don't have what it takes. But Jesus does. And if he asks you to do something and you don't think you can, trust me, he can. And he wants to. So there's all these fears and they're legitimate. And I know this is super hard. It is hard for me to be a whatever Christ follower. It is hard for Dave, Dave Nelson and for Andy Marshall and for all of us. But I know one thing. If we let these fears get in our way of doing whatever Jesus asks from us, you and I will be the ones missing out. Because God is going to do what he's going to do. And he's going to find somebody that's going to say, whatever you want, I'll do it. Somebody's going to step in if you don't. But then that person will get to experience God at work in their life and go on an adventure that's going to blow their mind because they're going to see God at work. I don't want to miss out on that. I don't know about you. I knew a, a cannonball Christian like that. His name was Major Ian Thomas. This last week, my wife and I, my family and I were on vacation in Colorado visiting some friends and on Wednesday, I drove up to Estes Park, and there's a Bible school there called Ravencrest Chalet by an organization called Torchbearers that Major Thomas founded. And I, I had a sit-down with his wife, and she reminded me of some of the stories of his life. Major Thomas was a major in the British Army in Germany. Actually, a large part of the German Army surrendered to him. I don't know what they were thinking, but they did. 
Actually, in the Tower of London, in the museum, there is the white flag that they, that they handed over to him, and there's a whole uh, plaque on Major Thomas. See, Major Thomas was a follower of Jesus. He was a cannonball kind of Christian. He was in Germany, and he was overseeing the occupational forces of the British Army. But you know what really, what really struck him? was the young German people that had lost all hope and all future, and everything they knew and believed in was gone. And he knew Jesus, and he knew they needed to. So he heard about an old, a huge estate near Manchester with a castle on it that was up for auction after the war. And him and his wife had saved some money. I think it was about 500 British pounds. He called his wife up or wrote her a letter and said, I want you to take all of that money. I believe we're supposed to, to get this property so that we can bring young people there and teach them about Jesus and how much he loves them. She was like, you have got to be out of your mind. All of our, and this is never going to be enough. This is a huge estate, a castle, all, this, all the bells and whistles. And he said, I really feel God wants this from us. And they both said, whatever, whatever he wants. She went to that auction and it shouldn't have been enough. And she said, I'm going to make one offer. When we come to my amount, we're going to throw it in. People were bidding, bidding, bidding. She made her bid, bidding stopped. They got this castle called Cape and Ray Hall. And he started taking young German teenagers over there for the summer, teach them about Jesus and how much he loves them. They came back to Germany and called themselves torchbearers because they had been given the light that they were going to carry out into the world. And then this organization formed. They took on this name torchbearers. Major Thomas started Bible schools like this all over the world today. There's 26 or 27 on every continent where young people every fall go for half a year to learn about what it means to live with Jesus. Major Thomas would pick up hitchhikers on the British autobahn, if they have such a thing. He would pick up teenagers that are hitchhiking, tell them about Jesus. Two or three of them became directors of, his, of these torchbearer centers all over Europe. See, so you know what he was doing? He had jumped into that pool and that's what Mike Bro is talking about in this book. He started making ripples. He rippled on lots of lots of people, on young German teenagers that then went back to Germany to ripple. He rippled on these hitchhikers who then rippled on other people and affected their lives. My grandmother, my mother's mother, heard about this Major Thomas and wrote him a letter and said, I would love for my children to come to your center and learn about Jesus and learn English. And how can we do that? A few weeks later... He stood in front of their door. He was traveling through Germany, looked them up, stood at the door and said, Hi, here I am. Can I take your children to England with me? He took my mother and her brother and rippled on her. And then my mother rippled on me. And then I started going to summer camps to, to Cape and Ray Hall. And, and the, he rippled and, and the staff rippled on me. And I heard about what it means to live with Jesus. And I decided to go to the six-month Bible school. And that's where I really made a commitment to say, Okay, Jesus, I want to be all in. I want to totally surrender my life to you. I want to do whatever you want from me. And that's when I, I just knew he wanted me to go into ministry. See, Major Thomas rippled, rippled, and somehow these ripples came to me, and now I get to ripple. I get to ripple on my family, on my children. I get to ripple on you, and you get to ripple on me. Major Thomas died in August of 2007, but his ripples are still going strong. Actually, they're waves the tsunami. Every year, there's tens of thousands of young people all over this world that hear about what it means to really walk with Jesus based on, because of him being willing 50 years ago to say, whatever you want from me, Jesus, I will do. 
I don't care what people think. I don't care how, how ridiculous this seems. I will do whatever you want from me. So here's the real question for today. What do you want to be? Do you want to be... And again, how you get in the swimming pool is really of no relevance. But do you want to be a spiritual toe dipper who just kind of tastes the freshness and, and backs away? Or do you want to be a cannonball Christian who tucks his knees under his chin and jumps in and ripples? Ripples on other people. Do you want to be somebody who really surrenders to Jesus and changes his or her world? See, not everybody's called to start a worldwide organization that affects tens of thousands of people. For you, it can mean rippling on your family, rippling on your neighborhood, rippling on your city, on your coffee shop. What is God calling you to do? Do you want to sit there when you're 95 wishing you had really jumped in? Wishing you had lived a life of adventure with God? Wishing you had lived a life that ripples on after you're gone? I don't want to live with those regrets. Or are you willing to jump in and give your life away in the process? I told you, it's hard for me to always live this whatever God attitude. But you know what? I've really been challenged in this. And I, I want to be part of this whatever generation that says whatever you want, Jesus. You know, God has called us to this time and this place. If we don't say whatever now, nobody will. Do you join me? Would you join me in saying, Jesus, whatever you want... I will do whatever you ask, I will give. Because I tell you, one life surrendered to Jesus, one life surrendered to Jesus can change the world. All of our lives surrendered to Jesus? Tsunami. Do you want to join the whatever generation of Christ followers with me? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we have your word, that we can read about, about you, about your life, and how, how you surrendered to the Father 100%. Lord, and I confess that I have such a hard time doing that. I'm so fearful, fearful of the unknown, of what people think of me. But Lord, I want to come to the place where my life is characterized by saying whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want, I will do. Whatever you ask, I will give. And Lord, I can only imagine the impact that we can have in this valley, in this state, and in this country, and in this world if we as a church surrender to you. Because one life surrendered to you can be changed by you. Because then you, the greatest world changer in history, comes into our lives and you start rippling through our lives into the people around us. So I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts right now, that you would speak just right now in terms of what you want from us, what it is that you are asking us to do, to say and to give. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.